Hello and welcome to the latest edition of It's Your Money, the Mayor Brownsword podcast, where we take a deep dive into the Mariana Trench of money and come up with the occasional oyster of investment knowledge. I'm Andrew Harrison. Today's episode is the It's a Marathon, Not a Sprint edition. We're going to be talking about goals. Where do you want to be? How do you get there? And how do you keep your head when all about you are losing theirs? To talk it over, as ever, I'm joined by Andy Mayer. How are you doing, Andy? Very well, thank you. It's nice to be on again with you, Andrew. Glad to be back after the summer break. And returning to the podcast, we have a special guest. Ryan Murphy is Global Head of Behavioural Insights at Morningstar, the global investment advice firm. Hello, Ryan. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. And before we start, for anybody who missed your last appearance, uh, Ryan, what exactly is Behavioural Insights? What, what do you do and how do you do it? Sure. So we study how people make decisions about risk and money and investing. And we use those insights to try and help people make better decisions and also design processes and tools that advisors can use with their clients to improve the outcomes of investment decisions. A lot of the models we have that come from academia posit that people are perfectly rational decision agents and markets are populated by these magic beings. But anyone who's got a little bit of experience in the world knows that people don't always make perfectly rational choices. So we try and you know understand this and, and realize that there are patterns to the kinds of mistakes people make, kind of predictable irrationalities, and using those insights to try and educate and inform and improve the quality of choices people make. Yeah, I read up a little around this uh, before we started recording and saw that you uh, you co-wrote a report for Morningstar on why do people hire their financial advisors, and you found that emotional reasons are much more powerful than logical reasons. Can can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, sure. So. People were influenced by lots of different factors, and one of the factors that came up was discomfort in handling financial issues and a desire to try and make good decisions, recognizing that people recognize themselves that they weren't always going to be making the best of choices. And so they were looking for things like how to make better choices, how to stay the course. These are the things that fall under the rubric of behavioral coaching. And these findings suggest that it's important for advisors to lead with their ability to provide both good financial support. So, I mean, the the expertise that they have, but also to be cognizant of the emotional issues that could be driving a person to seek financial advice. Andy, this makes sense because uh, when I became your client, it was was in many ways because you wanted certainty. We worried about the future, but also he seems like a good bloke, which helps. I think, Andrew, when you work with anybody, you want to believe that you can trust them and they've got your best interest at heart. That's regardless of whether you're working with a financial advisor, an accountant, or your washing machine has broken down and you're bringing in a plumber to fix it. You want to work with people who you can trust, but ultimately have your best interests at their heart. Mm. Well, let's talk about these financial goals that I mentioned at the top and and how to get there. Um, Ryan, deciding where you want to be ought to be the cornerstone of investing, shouldn't it? Do you find in your research that people actually think that clearly? No. And, and just to back up, I mean, the premise there is, you know, if you don't know where you're going, you might not get there, right? To quote the great thinker Yogi Berra. And I, I'm convinced that goal-centric financial planning is is the best way to approach this. People should understand where they want to be long-term and then make choices today that maximize the chances of them getting there or getting closer. And this is, I, I think it's very sensible. You say these sorts of things and people, you know, they say, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. But a lot of the practices that have emerged in investment planning and guidance really are not all that goal centric. So for example, sometimes people take risk tolerance questionnaires, which give some insight in how they're going to respond to market volatility. 
This is useful. It's an important thing to understand how a person's going to respond when the market naturally is going to have more ups and downs. But that shouldn't be the primary driver of how people make their investment choices. And yet some shops use an RTQ or use the results from a risk tolerance questionnaire to be the primary guide of how people are invested. And I think that's really a, a misstep. I think it's a much more complicated process. And ultimately what advisors are doing with their clients is answering this really big question of what makes a portfolio good for this client. And that turns out to be a wickedly complicated problem. So is there a kind of a, a matrix or a checklist where you can kind of you know, look at yourself and work out if you really are setting goals the way you ought to be. Right. So as part of a research project we did a couple of years ago, we looked at the ways in which people have long-term goals and articulate them. And one of the surprises of that research was many of the things that people say off the top of their heads as to what their overarching long-term financial goals are really isn't that reliable. And so by giving people a little bit more of a framework, a moment to think about what they want, and then give them a checklist these are the kinds of long-term goals that many other people have. What appeals to you? You know, mark that off. What doesn't appeal to you? Scratch that away kind of thing. Just going through that process and then asking the person, all right, now that you've been through that, what are your long-term financial goals? People often give different answers. In fact, we found about 25% of people fundamentally changed what they said was their top goal. And about 75% of people changed at least one of their top three. So just this idea of using a checklist helps people recenter and better understand themselves. I don't think they were lying. I don't think they were trying to deceive their advisor. I think they just didn't know. And what makes this problem particularly pernicious is that they didn't know that they didn't know. Mm. And that's that's hard. How do you broach that with a client? I mean, I, I don't think you want to start off straight up and tell the client, hey, dear client, I don't think you understand yourself particularly well. But I think that there are more circuitous routes, and in this case, a very productive route to getting clients to be less strangers to themselves. So can you tell me a little bit more about that kind of that critical framework where you can work out what your goals ought to be? Because I think I'm probably in common with a lot of people, you know, thinking about their future investments. You've got a vague idea that you want to be secure, but you don't right. really know what that looks like or or how. Right. So I think that that could be a very superficial answer, right? Why are you investing? Well, to have more money. I mean, it's true, but it's not all that useful. And so I think that this is the, the start of a conversation and something an advisor can definitely do with his or her clients is to try and help the client better articulate what's really driving them. Money is the means. It's not the end, right? There's other things people are, are driving toward. Safe and secure retirement. Okay, that's the start of a discussion. What does that mean? Getting to the pragmatics of what sort of cash flows and timelines would that really entail? And then starting to get to other things that they're trying to accomplish. So one of the more recent pieces of research we did, we called it digging deeper into goals. And we were looking at some of the things that drive happiness and satisfaction. And goals are, of course, a central part of this. But it, the idea there being that there's a more superficial level and then a deeper level. So a person might say that they want to save up and invest for having a cottage on the coast. Then you start to dig deeper. Why? What are they trying to achieve there? Well, it could be something about having closer connections to friends and family. That's really good to know, right? And as an advisor is trying to understand their client's motivations, it's not just make more money. It's not just the cottage. The cottage is part of that. But it's this deeper goal of being able to facilitate good relationships with friends and family. This sounds like investment existentialism. 
Well, I mean, this is some of the most important decisions people make with their life savings. When you look at how much time people spend earning and saving, it, I think, requires a certain amount of depth. I think it warrants being thoughtful and careful about how people make these kinds of decisions. And I think that you're right. I mean, if a financial advisor started, you know, talking about, you know, existentialism, that maybe wouldn't be the the right foot (laughs) to start the conversation. But I think that, you know, good advisors and those advisors I've talked with recognize this. They're talking to their clients about what drives them the most, uh, what leads to happiness and fulfillment, and what they're trying to do with their resources and their legacy. And all of those, I think, are very core to you know what it means to lead and develop a good life. And yeah, a lot of that has a very existential flavor to it. I tell you what, Andy, you don't get this level of philosophical debate from Martin Lewis, the money-saving expert, do you? <laughs> We're very, very high level here. Um, right, I wanted to ask you, um, as I mentioned, I'm sort of motivated partly by kind of vague, ill-defined, we sort of worry about the future, uncertainty. Is Is that healthy? Should you get past that? And is there, in fact, a good, a positive, a useful way to worry? I think so. I mean, you can imagine a person that had zero worry or anxiety at all, and they may not do very much, right? So worry or a little bit of anxiety can prompt people to do things. But I think the next natural question that a person should ask is, okay, so what do I have control over? Do I have control over what the markets are going to do tomorrow or next quarter? No in no way whatsoever. I don't have the resources to move the market. Okay, fine. So given that, it doesn't probably make a lot of sense to worry about what the market's going to do. What do I have control over? Oh, savings rate, right? I can boost my savings rate a little bit. And it turns out that's one of the biggest drivers of financial success. So if I can find a way to save more and invest more every month, that's going to lead to a much higher probability of getting where I want to go. So I think the idea of recognizing anxiety or worry and seeing that first and foremost, calling it out and discussing it is useful. But then the so what, what are you going to do about it, I think makes a lot of sense as, as the next step. It, you know, There's the thinking that if it's just worry by itself, you get about as far as being in a rocking chair, right? Lots of motion, <laughs> no real forward action. And I think that that is worth keeping in mind. Yeah, a little anxiety can be useful to prompt people to, so what do you want to do? Andy, having established your goals and sort of thought them through and dug into them, once we've established them, it's often hard to get people to concentrate on, you know, sticking to them. I mean, I know you like your sporting metaphors. Uh, we were talking about this 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 subject, and you said it reminds you of the new Celtic manager being asked if he was going to concede the title in the first month of the season because he'd lost three games, and he said titles weren't handed out in September, but in May. I mean, it's, this is this is your mantra, isn't it? Time in the market. I think since COVID. I've seen a lot more people focus on the short term and maybe that's a consequence of the worry that the world went through for a couple of years. But it is about time in the market and it is about reaching your goals. Recently, we just had someone say, my fund is down. I went, you're right, but you've got enough to retire on. That was the goal. And his goal was to have a lump sum of money that would allow him to live the life he wanted. He'd got it. And so sometimes it's very easy to focus on the short-term turbulence in the market. And generally, when you get on the plane and the pilot says there's going to be turbulence, you land. It's a bit uncomfortable, but you land safely. Same when you invest in the stock market. There's going to be turbulence. We just don't know when. Yeah. And so how do you, in your position, how do you get people to stick to their plan or to their commitment when the market is volatile and it's looking like, you know, you might not just be going through a periodic correction, you might be going through something that is going to have consequences for 10 years or whatever. 
We try and communicate with them a lot. We get experts like Ryan. And if people have got concerns, we say, call us. And it was recently when uh, the bank in America had the uncertainty, Silicon Valley Bank, we sent out a newsletter to say to people, this is how much it affects your portfolio, which was nothing, to reassure them they were still on target for where they want to be. Ryan, does the kind of does the sporting metaphor work for you? You know, it's a year long season. Uh, it's kind of things are not determined in the short term. Yeah, I mean, I, I see that for sure. I mean, for me, there's this joke I always liked. It's one of the shortest jokes in the English language. It's from Henny Youngman. The setup is three words: "How's your wife?" And the punchline is three words: "Compared to what?" Right? <laughs> <laughs> but what I love about that joke is, I mean, it's it's pithy. I mean, it's six words and it's really funny. But it highlights, I think, a really important principle that we can impart to clients and, and others to just to think better, right? So, anytime you're evaluating something, is something good? There's a natural frame of reference that you have to use to start to think about it. Is it good compared to what? Now, most often we don't think carefully about what frame of references we're using when making these evaluations. And for example, back to the market metaphor, you know, what did the market do yesterday? How's my portfolio doing compared to what it was doing last week? Notice the frame of reference there. Mm. And that's going to lead to a particular set of evaluations and maybe even spurn action that's not so bright. So what if you didn't change the time frame? How is my portfolio doing? Is it on track to get me towards my goals? Just like Andy was saying, yeah, you're still on track for this. What just happened in the market last week had basically no consequence for that. Notice that recontextualization and that reframing of the question. And so what you did there with the client, then as you reframed it compared to what, and you gave them a much better framework, a much better comparison for them to think about what they're doing and where they want to go. And back to the turbulence one, I mean, I, I fly occasionally, I don't like turbulence, but passengers, especially the really anxious ones, make the mistake of looking at the other really anxious passengers, right? And then they look at each other and then you have this anxiety feedback loop where they're convinced they're all going to die. The the (laughs) smartest person on the airplane looks at the oldest flight attendant they can find. And invariably, this person is non-pulsed. Like she's been through this before and this is Mm. normal turbulence. She doesn't even look up from her iPhone. That's a good signal, right? So again, what advisors can do is provide that kind of context to their clients. There's always going to be turbulence, right? We expect this. That's a normal part of flying. It's a normal part of investing. What the advisor can do is say, look, let's look at the long history of the marketplace here and recognize this is normal turbulence. This is fine. This is what we expect. Keep your eye on the goal and let's keep moving toward where you're trying to get. That's really interesting. I mean, you know, the, uh, are there other sort of exercises you can think of that enable people to come out of the immediate events that are surrounding them and, you know, take a longer view or maybe sort of screen out the noise? Well, I think just many of the ways in which we report how portfolios are doing is part of that. So if you look at different plots that show a time series of prices or returns, the x-axis is chosen by whoever is putting that plot together. And if it's a very short term, let's look what the market did in the last three months, you're going to frame the person to think about short term. Uh, In fact, many websites, their default is what has the market done today? That's a really dreadful default to use Mm. making people think about what markets do and how markets can serve their long-term interests. I wish the default across the industry was not what did the market do today, but what has the market done in the last 10 or 20 years? And when you do that, when you change the x-axis, the jiggles you see along the y-axis, the ups and downs, become much more meaningful in the sense that it's contextualized. 
And when you take this long-term perspective, that's what's going to, you know, that long-term general positive returns, that's the pattern we're having people, we want them to pay attention to and that they're buying into. So I think that just even these subtle things we do in how we present results and how we show data to people changes how they think about things. And once you know that, then you can start to use that with your own clients and start to reframe the discussion, not what did the what did your portfolio do in the last quarter, but how is your portfolio keeping you on track to your long-term goals? We are absolutely surrounded by data now. I mean, even the I'm uh, sort of holding an iPad in my hand and I'm one click away from all the information about today's stock market. Mm-hmm. Has that kind of that ubiquity of data affected people's ability to stick to their goals, do you think? Because when you're constantly besieged by, you know, here's a news alert telling you something's gone up or gone down, or here's the FTSE app on my iPhone uh, Mm -hmm. showing me a graph heading in one direction or another, does that drag people away from their ability to focus on where they ought to be going? I think so. It makes it very short term. And these apps are slick and they, you know, if the market's going down, it makes it in big, bright red, right? Mm. That's not going to help. It's not going to help a person understand what do they need to do today to get where they want to go. And it's going to start to fixate them on lots of different noise. Like, I mean, just backing up, remember the human brain is a highly evolved organ here that's that's designed to pick up and detect patterns. And our brains are so good at detecting patterns, they'll sometimes see patterns that aren't even there. Mm-hmm. And so when you give people lots of noise, lots of feedback, lots of data, people are going to start to see patterns that maybe aren't there. And that can spur an action, which is not that smart. Like if you look in a casino, the casinos are very helpful at the roulette table. Well, they'll show you what the roulette ball has done for the last 20 rolls or so, right? And people will study those boards meticulously looking for patterns. And many people will find patterns. And that induces people to bet more, to change their bets, to update their strategies. Is that helping? Probably not. It's not as though the ball has a memory and it's not as though the system is somehow predictable. It isn't. But people are gravitating towards this and trying to find stories amongst noise. I think that the apps, I mean, like my watch has an app that'll let me see what the stock market's doing or my portfolio is doing. I've shut it off. I do not need to know this on a daily basis. I check much less frequently and that works out better for me. I got a watch. I deliberately didn't get an Apple watch because I don't want to be badgered with information. I don't want to be told every five minutes, this is the way the world is changing. Yeah, I've shut those off. I mean, as a favor to my my current self and also as a favor to my future self. I mean, this That minutia data is not going to help me make better decisions or be happier or more productive. So I just turn it off. Do you have any other sort of hints and tips on how to sort of maintain a, a less immediate and chaotic view of the world? Well, I think when it comes to financial decision-making, there's certainly some television programs that are a little bit more of finances as entertainment. And any TV for, or financial show that has you know that red ticker you know, prices <laughs> yes. moving along the bottom, that's probably not going to help most retail investors make better choices. And I also think it helps create a misunderstanding of what markets do and how markets work. And really, I think people would be wiser to do is to think, you know, much longer term. They look in terms of their portfolio performance over years, not what it did last month or last quarter. And by reframing the decision and turning down the amount of information they're getting can help them focus on the long term, which I think helps lead to better choices. Just finally, um, could I, as an investor, change my behavior, maybe with coaching then that, that uh, you know, finding ways to make me think differently? 
Yeah, there's there's research that bolsters this idea. So we've done work along those lines and other firms have as well. So there have been meta studies that are showing the value of good advice that comes from advisors and the benefit of behavioral coaching. So Vanguard has a study along these lines as well as other providers. But the, the estimates are that coaching, good coaching can provide a real change in portfolio returns uh, somewhere around you know 1% or so a year on average, maybe more. And that's the benefit that comes from good advice. Part of what's being driven there is that people are setting up good strategies, good asset allocations, and just leaving it alone. There's a well-known study that comes out of behavioral finance where people looked at the amount that investors fiddled with their portfolios or changed their asset allocations. And it's one of the clearest and starkest sets of results you can imagine. The more people go in and change their portfolios, the lower their long-term returns are. Best outcomes that retail investors were seen to have are those who don't mess with their portfolios and just leave it alone. So there we go. In summary, take time to set your goals, stick with them, delete the FTSE app from all of your devices, and don't mess around with it. I think so. I mean, that's and I think that's a little bit boring, right? Of advice that doesn't mm. seem very exciting when you see in the movies, like you know, people on Wall Street or or talking heads uh, t- screaming about markets. Um, you know, the advice that we just sort of outlined there is not exciting, and yeah, it's not supposed to be. It shouldn't be exciting, right? It's a thirty-year process based on principles and lots of math and statistics and data, and yeah, this seems to be the best advice that we have. I've got enough excitement in my life, I think. Um, <laughs> Andy, just in closing, what, what what have you found valuable in terms of getting people to stick to the course? I mean, you can't tell everybody about Celtic, can you? What I was going to say is I think Ryan summed it up. I think a lot of people, because now the providers give you an app and it shows you what you've done. If you if every provider just gave you a 20-year frame, mm. that's what you're looking at. And I think when people take the longer point of view, the longer time frame, it's great. But these apps where people go up every day, so it's down, it's up, you just end up unhappy. And we often say to people, let us do the worrying, just don't check it. But the people I find who check more often are more unhappy and they worry more about things they can't change. So it's just, as Ryan said, don't fiddle. Don't fiddle. That's it. That used to make little button badges that say that, Andy. Don't fiddle. The best advice going. Well, that brings us to our goal, which is the end of the podcast. Um, we hope you've enjoyed it and that you found it useful. Thanks to our special guest, Ryan Murphy from Morningstar. My pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Always great having you on. What, what's your goal for the rest of the year? Or is, are you even thinking in terms of a year? Are you thinking in 10 and 20 year terms? <laughs> well, I mean, you, you do need to you know, maintain some sort of median term goals. There's a couple of research projects I'm starting to dig into, which I really like. And some of them are bigger ones. Uh, one of them now is starting to think about how people make forecasts and how they start to think about the future. And so I'm just starting to, to get around the edges of that. But that, to me, is a really interesting piece of research. So the more that we can have insights into this to help people do it well, the better. Fantastic. And Andy, thank you for having us on again. What's your goal for the autumn? I think just enjoying my life and my job. And hopefully my son's off to Sheffield University in a couple of weeks. He settles in well. Fantastic. It's a great place to go. Listeners, thanks for listening. Uh, Remember to follow It's Your Money on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or the app of your choice. Once you follow us, you'll get the next edition sent to your phone automatically. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. We hope you found it useful. And we'll see you next time.